What's one thing you should never do in polite company? Not that the comments section of a video on the internet is polite company, but we're going to venture into this territory today by talking about what Jesus thinks about your politics. Now, before you jump into the comment section with your opinions or bust out the popcorn and watch the fireworks fly, I wanna ask you to try and forget what you think I'm going to say or how you think Christians should or shouldn't vote. Because in this video, we're not going to be promoting one political party or candidate over another. And we're not even going to be talking about any individual policies. What we want to examine in this video is what Jesus thinks about how you should handle your politics. Now, that may seem like a big task because Jesus lived nearly 2,000 years ago and the United States is less than 300 years old. So what could Jesus or the Bible have to say? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at a story out of the life of Jesus where he taught his followers how to relate to their governments both then and for all time. And at Community Christian Anywhere, we believe Jesus is right about everything. We believe the life he invites us into is one where we learn from him how to best love everyone always just as he loves us. And so his opinion matters more than our own. And even if you're not sure you believe what we do, I hope you'll stick around throughout this video because I believe if you continue to investigate the teachings of Jesus, you'll see he's the smartest person to ever live and his teachings on human life are the most insightful in all of history. And I believe that's because he's God. But you don't have to agree with me on that because no matter what you think about God, he can't stop thinking about you. He's for you and he has the best life possible in mind for you. And we wanna help you figure that out today as we talk about God and politics together. Hi, my name's Kelly and welcome to Community Christian Anywhere. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might trap him into saying the wrong thing. They sent their followers to him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're truthful and that you teach God's way truthfully. You don't care what anyone thinks about you because you don't try to flatter people or favor them. So tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus knew their evil intentions. Why are you trying to trick me, you hypocrites, he said. Show me the tribute coin. They brought him a dinar. This image, said Jesus, and, and this inscription, who do they belong to? Caesar, they said. Well then, said Jesus, you better give Caesar back what belongs to Caesar and give God what belongs to God. When they heard that, they were astonished. They left him and went away. Now, this is a pretty famous story out of the life of Jesus, and maybe you've heard it before, but one of the things that's often missing in this passage is that Jesus implies that the question about taxes to Caesar and the law of God, it's a violation of the law of God itself. He does that by responding to their question about something being lawful with a commandment given by God to Moses. This command he replies with by implication is, do not put the Lord your God to the test. For those of you who are listening who are Bible nerds like me, you know that this is the same response that Jesus recites when he's tempted by the devil in the desert. Jesus knew that their question wasn't an honest question. It's a trap or it's a test. Therefore, the question itself, 
It's breaking the law. So he replies, why are you putting me, I'm God after all, to the test? Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? Jesus, yes or no? If you've ever heard the beginning of the good news of Jesus, read at Christmas time, you know that the whole story of Jesus begins with Caesar decreeing that the whole world should be taxed. And in a few days after this question, Jesus will stand before the Roman governor and these leaders will lie and say that Jesus has claimed to be the king of the Jews and has told his followers not to pay Caesar the tax. Now, the tax in question was the Roman head tax or a census tax. It's levied on every person for the privilege of being a Roman citizen. You might be interested to know that it's the same tax that brought the word gospel into existence. That word gospel, it's what Rome referred to when they would make the announcement to you, Caesar has conquered you, good news. Caesar is no longer your enemy. He's now your emperor and also your God. And now hear the good news. You have the awesome privilege of paying taxes to cover the cost of having been conquered by Caesar. Now, this in particular tax, this one we're talking about, not only was paid with a denarius, or as our text calls it, uh, the tribute coin. It was made from the imperial mint, and it, it wasn't a whole lot. I recently saw it calculated in today's dollars as about $20. So the tax isn't that oppressive, but it was a cr incredibly offensive to the Jewish people. On one side of the coin, there's this image of the emperor, Caesar Tiberius. And on the other side is this inscription, Caesar, Tiberius, son of God, our great high priest. For a Jewish person, just to carry that coin meant that you're breaking the first and most basic commandment. You can't have any other God than me. And therefore, anyone who carried it was considered ritually unclean and they could not go into the temple which for some of you, you'll, you'll know that Jesus overturned the tables or the money changers, and that just tells you what they did. They were money changers. They set up shop in the temple grounds to profit off the Jews who needed to exchange money currency uh, before they worshiped or made an offering. You have these Roman coins, you're carrying them around, they make you ritually unclean, but you wanna come and you wanna give lip service to God? Well, we got you covered. Give us your Roman coins, and for a small carrying fee, we will give you temple coins. You see how the system works? Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, you can see why they laid what they think is the perfect trap for Jesus. Get in trouble with the Romans for saying, don't pay any tax. Get in trouble with the crowds by saying, hey, stop this hypocrisy in the temple of changing out the coins. There's a whole lot going on. Today's passage takes place during Holy Week on Tuesday before Friday when Jesus dies. On Sunday before this passage, Jesus rides into Jerusalem to a king's welcome. On Monday, the day before this passage, Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus pitches a temple tantrum, crashing over all the cash registers in the money changers and the animal sellers and driving them from the temple grounds. And that's when they decide to kill Jesus. Why? Because there's more going on here than you can see on the surface. T. 
200 years before this argument, Israel was under the thumb of a different empire, the Greeks. And during that time, there was a guerrilla leader named Judas Maccabee. He was known as the Sledgehammer, which would be a great name for a wrestler if you ask me. But anyway, the Sledgehammer's father had sent him to avenge the wrong done by our enemies and pay back the Gentiles what they deserve. So the Sledgehammer rode into Jerusalem with an army of followers to a king's welcome. He promised to bring a new kingdom. He symbolically cleansed the temple of Gentiles and he told his followers not to pay taxes to their oppressors. Judas Maccabee got rid of the Greek oppressors only to turn around and sign a treaty with Rome because that's how politics works. The sledgehammer traded one kingdom for another. But you should know, he became the prototype for the kind of Messiah the people of Israel were expecting. That's 200 years before the conversation about Caesar and taxes. Now, just 25 years before that conversation, when the little boy Jesus was running around Nazareth, another Judas, who was named after the sledgehammer, Judas the Galilean, also called for his followers to not pay the Roman tax, and he rode into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna. He cleansed the temple, and then he declared that he was going to bring a new kingdom with God as their king, and Judas the Galilean was executed by Rome. Now do you see the problem more clearly? Jesus, the Galilean, had been teaching about the kingdom of God, his father's kingdom for three years. He's just ridden into Jerusalem to a Messiah's welcome. He's cleansed the temple and driven out the money changers. The only thing left for Jesus to do to become the modern sledgehammer is to declare a revolution, to stand up to injustice, to overthrow the government, and to deliver the oppressed. He just has to pick up the sword and get on with it. And that's why the Pharisees and the Herodians come to trap him with questions about this tax. They're saying, hey, Jesus, you say you want a revolution. That's the real question. Come down off the fence, Jesus, which side are you on? You know that saying, politics makes strange bedfellows? You can see it here. For the Pharisees and the Herodians to cooperate on anything is like the Republicans nominating Nancy Pelosi to lead their national convention, or the Democrats raising money for Donald Trump's run for a second term. The Pharisees and the Herodians were on the left and right political options of Jesus' day. The Herodians supported the current political administration. They thought cooperation with Rome was a good thing. Rome, after all, had brought roads and clean water and sanitation. And even if it took a sword, Rome had brought stability to their country that hadn't known stability for centuries. The last thing the Herodians wanted was a revolution. And if Jesus says that's what he's bringing, they will march right off to the governor and turn him in. On the other hand, the Pharisees hate the current administration. They are the party that is for the resistance to the government. They are the Bible-believing observers of God's commandments. They believed a coin with Caesar's image and Son of God printed on it was just one example of how the administration forced people of faith to compromise their convictions. The Pharisees wanted regime change. They wanted grassroots, righteous revolution. They didn't want it being brought by a third party like Jesus, who was out of their control. And so if Jesus says he's not bringing a revolution, the Pharisees will get exactly what they want because all Jesus's followers will think Jesus wasn't really serious about the kingdom of God stuff. They'll write him off and they'll walk away. So that's the trap. Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it or isn't it? If Jesus says no, it will mean his death. And if Jesus says yes, it'll mean the death of the movement. So taxes, Jesus, yes or no? 
Jesus, which is it going to be, the sword or the sledgehammer? Which party do you belong to? You've got to choose one or the other. Check the box. What are your politics? So Jesus asked for the coin, and then he asked them, whose image is on this? And the Greek word that Jesus uses for image is icon. It's the very same word at the beginning of the Bible when it says that you and I, we were created in the image of God. Icons of God, icons of Caesar, icons of God. Jesus looks at the coin and he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar, but give to God what's God's. But even then, it's not that simple because Jesus is so far ahead of them that the word he uses for give is not the same word that they used when they asked the question. When the two parties come to him and they ask the question, they use the word uh, forgive that means to present like a gift. But when Jesus replies to their question, he changes the word. Instead, Jesus uses a word that they would know that Judas the sledgehammer had already used hundreds of years earlier. Jesus says literally, pay back to Caesar what he deserves and pay back to God what he deserves. You see how wise Jesus' answer is? What does a tyrant deserve? It's his money. He's got his picture on it. Give it back to him. And what does God deserve from you? What has God given to you? What does he provide for you? Well, everything. So Jesus is saying, you can give to Caesar what bears his image, but you can't let Caesar stamp his image on you because you bear God's image. Jesus is saying, you can give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you can't give to Caesar. You can't give to the nation. You can't give to your politics. You can't give to your ideology. You can't give to your party affiliation. You can't give to your tribe. You mustn't give to those things what they demand you give, which often feels like you must give them ultimate allegiance. See, Jesus is so smart. He he just refuses the premise of their question. Two parties, Pharisees and Herodians, they assume there's just a two-party system. They assume it's a choice between the kingdom that you have now and another kingdom not all that different, but just with their color on it. They assume the only choice is between the sledgehammer or the sword. But Jesus, he just refuses the premise. He, He won't be put in their boxes. He won't choose sides. Jesus refuses to accept their premise because his movement It's about defeating his enemies by giving himself up for them. His movement, it's about overcoming sin by suffering for sinners. That while we were yet his enemies, we were sinners. Jesus the Galilean uh, took not up a sword or a sledgehammer, he took a cross. And that qualifies all our politics. The Bible has a word for the red and blue rhetoric that we shout at each other and tweet each other. The Bible has a word for how we scream at each other with our signs and fence ourselves off with hashtags and draw lines, always with our faithful selves on the righteous side. The word the Bible would use for the way we do our politics is idolatry. And for some people, left and right, maybe you, this is a serious spiritual issue. So here's my one simple bipartisan prescription. And if we would take it, it could change the way that people see the one whom we worship, that he really is the only hope for us and our friends and our enemies. 
here's the prescription. When it comes to politics, don't do to Jesus what he wouldn't do. Don't put him in a political box. Don't make Jesus choose sides. Don't put a sword or a gun or an elephant or a donkey in Jesus' hands. Don't say, Jesus is for this party or against that party. Don't say, you know, this is a Christian position or on that issue. Don't say faithful Jesus followers must back this agenda or should support this issue. Don't insist that this or that Christian value ought to have a one party solution. Don't demonize those who you disagree with. I mean, the only thing that seems to be a democratic system in the Bible is when the majority of the crowd in a day or so will yell crucify him and they'll choose Barabbas instead of Jesus to live. That's my God and country prescription. Stop doing to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. And if you're a follower of his, don't mix your allegiances. You've been stamped with a different image. Now, as much as you might like me to do it, I can't end there. While I do believe my prescription calls you back to where God wants us to be, if I stop here, I haven't taken the chance to do much more than to make some of you feel good about yourself and others feel bad. And I pointed to what we can do to solve our problems. But at the heart of Christianity, it's the truth that we can't solve our problems. The good news of Jesus is never about the good that we can do in Jesus' names. It's the good news of what God has done in Jesus for us to bring glory to his name. The good news always points to God's work in Jesus. So every story in the account of Jesus' life, the account of his teachings, they're not primarily about a topic or this topic or that topic. They're stories about Jesus, about his work for us. In the entire Bible, it's not an encyclopedia of the universe. It's a unified story that leads us to Jesus from first to last. I mean, the center of all the Bible is about Jesus and his grace given for you freely by bleeding and dying and rising. That means that today's passage, it's not about us or what we should do or not do with regard to our interaction with human governments. This account is about Jesus and what he has done to bring us to himself. One professor I had years ago said, we must always be looking for the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus in every account. In the passage, the good news is hidden in plain sight. Teacher, is it lawful to pay Caesar taxes or not? But knowing the hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. Now, it's not stated here, but it's really hard to deny. They didn't seem to have any trouble finding the coins. I imagine all of them at the point he says, hand them one, they reach into their robes and they pull them out, which means they were all already lawbreakers asking him about how to keep the law of God. But don't miss the other thing that's obvious. Who doesn't have a coin? Jesus, he had to ask for one. The coin that condemns under the law, the Messiah, God's chosen, he's not carrying one. His pockets are empty. Because as Jason Michelli says, he says he stands alone with empty pockets, but a full, righteous heart. Jesus tells his cousin John the Baptist that he, he's come in the flesh not to judge and condemn sinners, not to turn sinners into non-sinners, not to get sinners to straighten up and fly right. He says he's come in order to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is not just a substitute for us on the cross. 
He's our substitute in his faithfulness. He comes in order to fulfill all righteousness required by the law. And we're told that at our baptism, we're forgiven and his righteousness becomes ours. See, the currency exchange that really matters isn't what happened with the money changers in the temple. It's what the ancient church fathers called the great exchange where all our sin is laid on Jesus as though our sin was his and all his righteousness is given to us as though it was our own. He takes the coin not from his pocket, but from our hands and takes our sin. And then two days later, he takes our sin and his body to the cross. And at our baptism, when we proclaim our trust in him, his righteousness is given to us. Where we worship idols at the altar of politics, he loved God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength, and his neighbor as himself. And that, all of that is ours through what he's done in his death and resurrection. Where we fail to render to God everything that belongs to God and where we give a whole lot more heartburn and bother to the Rome that we call the USA, by grace, through our baptism, you're credited as blameless, just as Jesus Christ himself. And I know that sounds too good to be true. And some of you, it's too offensive for you to believe because it is. That's why you need a preacher. It's why we have the church. It's why we need to see the symbols of the water of baptism and the cup and bread of communion. We need to see the tangible, audible reminders of the promise that we have been bought with a price. And we owe God everything. So that's the good news promise I want to attach to the prescription that you don't do to Jesus what Jesus wouldn't do to himself. Don't insist that Jesus fits into your red or blue box. Don't give to a government what ultimately belongs to God, which is your allegiance, because you've been gifted God's own righteousness, which frees you up to have the right to be wrong about politics or people or anything really for that matter. You're free to make foolish choices politically. You have the right to be wrong because Jesus offers you his perfect righteousness. But here's the truth. So does your neighbor. They have the right to be wrong too. So our best move is to give to God what belongs to God, your life, your allegiance, your love, and to do what he asks you to do, to love everyone always. Jesus is inviting you and me to be citizens of a new kind of kingdom, where our politics do not unite us to one another, but our love and allegiance to Jesus Christ as King do. And in this new kingdom, we are adopted into the family of God with brothers and sisters from all over the world who may not look or even vote like we do, but are fully devoted to loving everyone always just as Jesus has loved us. And we want to help you step into a community like this here at Community Christian Anywhere, because church was never meant to be content you consume, which is all that this video is right now. But church is a community where you can be committed to. And we'd love to help you take a step into our community right now. You can text the words next step to the number on the screen and someone from our team would love to reach out to you and help you figure out what your next step with our community is. But most importantly, as you leave today, I hope you know that no matter what you think about God, he can't stop thinking about you.